Welcome back, children of the revolution, to What You're Not Listening To, the award-winning audio educational and anthology series, commercial and sponsor-free, here on Ace of Spades, PDX.com. And I am Daddy Ben Bear, Ben Brown Jr., your host, show producer, webmaster, audio engineer, researcher, videographer, and writer, doing it all here on the DIY, of course, for the last day of Rocktober 21, 2021. Woo-woo! And of course, it's Halloween evening. Hopefully, uh, all of you are being safe out there, even with all the COVID crazy still going on and enjoying some candy and, and some good times. Yes, welcome to Sunday night. And for my final show of Rocktober 2021, on its final day, Halloween, another act, much like the first three featured this year, that laid the foundation for the respective subgenre of rock and roll. And this one is glam metal. Today, we visit the first decade of a band that just won't die, Motley Crue. And the title of the show is Flash, Cash, and Trash. Where were you 40 years ago? For myself, I was an awkward teenager who never believed he would fit in, and maybe I still don't. I was living in Los Angeles, and as much as I like pop, R&B, new wave, and mainstream rock, there was something afoot in the streets that was calling my name, heavy metal. I latched onto it quickly, and without even knowing it initially, was about to be immersed in the next wave of heavy rock acts that would come to rule the decade, bands that were alternately called hair metal or glam metal. At the epicenter of all of this was a group of four guys, Nikki Six, Tommy Lee, Vince Neil, a friend of Lee's from high school, and an older man, Bob Deal, soon to be known as Mick Mars. Starting their professional career on April Fool's Day at 81, 40 years ago, children, they realized they were about to hit on a unique sound when they drew from metal, 70s glam rock groups like Sweet and power pop bands like Cheap Trick. They also embraced high heels, flash clothing, and a makeup look that also drew heavily and equally from uh, S&M and androgynous glitter rock, replete with mega-volume hair. It was loud, fast, crude, and oftentimes ridiculous, the way that all great rock and roll was and is. They released their debut single, Stick to Your Guns, and debut album, Too Fast for Love. (laughs) And that happened. On a label, they formed themselves Leather Records. The men would uh, name themselves Motley Crue, even placing umlauts above the two vowels, like the ones used in Low and Brow Beer, a favorite of the group at the time, because reasons. Truly hated by critics and despised by conservatives, including then-Senator Al Gore's wife, Tipper, of the Parents Resource Music Center, you know, the people who put those little stickers on music that, you know, they find offensive. Uh, The band were signed to a major label, the first for the subgenre, and purposely went about making a name for themselves touring, even causing a series of publicity stunts that got their name into the press. By the time of their second album, Shout at the Devil... Yes. The band were now opening for Ozzy Osbourne, getting regular rotation on MTV and selling records by the millions, being fueled not by traditional promotion from their label, but simply by word of mouth. They kept their names in the papers, but instead of now publicity stunts, it was for all the wrong reasons. By 85, the band had a top 10 Billboard LP, Theater of Pain, and were Arena Rock headliners. But of course, in true VH1 behind-the-music fashion, the band started to wear themselves down with excessive drug use and infighting. They were disappointed musically by the time of their 87 LP, the mega-selling Girls, 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 and Six actually briefly died from an overdose. The band went to rehab and then recorded the most successful LP, Dr. Feelgood. 
Sadly, feuding among the members meant that Neil and Lee would be out of the band for a while at different periods, only later to return. The group had been active in recent years due in no small part to a New York Times bestseller called The Dirt and a highly rated biopic. Even though they supposedly called it a day several years ago and haven't released an album of new material since 2008, they're highly ambitious. Anticipated tour next year is expected to be a huge moneymaker, and um, the the set uh, you know the, it's going to be four bands: Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, Def Leppard, Poison, and Motley Crue. Oh, oh my god! <laughs> All right, I wonder if there's going to be an AARP membership discount. <laughs> I'm such an asshole. They were completely emblematic of the decade of excess, and the 80s, and still remain what they set out to be. The ultimate rock and roll party band and live act of their generation that, if you see feedback and postings online, still seems to gain devoted and fanatical new disciples daily. Yes, hard to believe, yes. I remember loving this band initially and before they became big. <sighs> People just... Yeah, they hated the band. They hated me for l- loving the band. And it, I used to draw these little, like, things right on my hands. I shit you not, of, like, the, the pentagram and their name on my hand. And my teachers used to get freaked out. That's how much it was ours. And that was something that was special. And uh, it's hard to explain that today, you know, um, in an era where peachy folders are now considered too old and stuff like this. Um, what these kinds of bands meant to us, um, you know, to help us get it through some really ugly times. Alrighty. And we're going to be kicking off the first part of our show here <laughs> with what is, you know, I have over 15,000 albums in digital format. And if you see the room I do this in, it's basically a storage room full of stereo and computer equipment and recordings of various types, vinyls, tapes, CDs, what have you. I say this with utmost certainty. This may be the most ridiculous intro to a song ever recorded. Repeat, most ridiculous. Every time I hear it, I laugh. I don't know. Did I think it was serious back then? <sighs> it's been a lot of drugs between now and then. It's hard to say, but, you know, it makes me laugh. And sure, why not? Because it's Motley Crue and why not? It was the decade of excess. Let's just have a good time. And uh, what's wrong with having a little fun along the way? The next voice you will hear is uh, Tom Worman, a producer originally from Boston, Massachusetts, who actually... Um, was a musician. I did play guitar in college, but uh, graduated from an M- with an MBA in from Columbia University and got a start in the record business in the early seventies by writing then president of CBS uh, 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 Records, Clive Davis, a letter and asking him to uh, see what he could do. Produced many, many mega selling albums for a f- flute slew of artists. From the album "Shout at the Devil." This is In the Beginning, followed by the title track to that album, both from 83, and we'll see you uh, in a little over 30 minutes.
Welcome back, children of the revolution, to what you're not listening to, the Howard Educational and Anthology Series, here on Ace of Spades, PDX.com, and I'm sure you're on Monkey Bear, Daddy Ben Bear, Ben Brown Jr., doing all here the DIY, and our last show for Rocktober, yeah, woo-woo, uh, 2021 here on Halloween, and we're looking at the 1980s career of Motley Crue, yes. Uh, let's recap what we've heard in our uh, first part before we get in our amazing second part. Hopefully you've been uh, playing it loud, dancing, or whatever that you do when you listen to Motley Crue. Maybe I don't want to know. <laughs> Kicked it off with In the Beginning and Shout at the Devil from the album Shout at the Devil. Well, I mean, the title track to Girls, Girls, Girls from 1987. Following that, Don't Go Away Mad. Just Go Away <laughs> from 1989's Dr. Feelgood. They're, in a sense, comeback album, the first one they recorded, Clean and Sober. Uh, that was also produced by Bob Rock, who would go into a, a career with uh, Metallica for uh, over a decade. Following that, Take Me to the Top, the original demo of that, and that's a bootleg recording from 1981. There's even a video of it that uh, surfaces online. Um, yes, it's um, nice and raw and just fast. And yeah, you just hear the band in their original form, right? Just out to change the world and take the world on. After that, tonight, We Need a Lover, a truly underrated track from the band from 1985's Theater of Pain, one they really should be doing more often live. After that was Teaser from the album Stairway to Heaven, Highway to Hell. Uh, and that was a compilation album of acts that went to the Moscow Peace Festival in 89. And uh, as stories go, uh, Motley Crue were the only band on the lineup who were sober. It was released in 89. That was a Tommy Bolin cover uh, from his uh, album of the same name, Teaser. And Bolin, of course, uh, was in bands called Zephyr. Uh, he was also uh, worked with jazz fusion artist Billy Cobham and uh, was, uh, for a while, the last guitarist for Deep Purple before uh, their reformation in 1984. Also died of a drug overdose. After that, a bootleg recording from 1984 um, of a live version of from Boston. Too young to fall in love with their opening for Ozzy Osbourne. And um, yes, can you imagine that? Uh, on Ozzy's next tour, he would take another young band from California out uh, who were also, you know, one of the bands that people really, really wanted to see. And that was Metallica. All right. So, you know, earlier today, I was having this conversation with my friend Michelle at work, and we were talking about misheard lyrics. Well, for years, I mean, probably decades. <laughs> Lyric sheet, I'll just make this stuff up as I hear it. When I hear Vince Neil go, whoa, whoa, for years, I swear to God, I thought he was saying a one-eyed whore. Like it was some Cyclops prostitute. I still can't hear this song without saying one-eyed whore. <laughs> Why would I even think that? Because it's Motley Crue and what the hell not. From the album Shout of the Devil from 1983, this is Bastard. <laughs> and we'll see you just before the grand finale.
And welcome back, children of the revolution, to what you're now listening to here on the Ace of Spades, the Educational Anthology. <laughs> you can tell I still record these in one day. The Other Educational and Anthology series. Obviously, I'm tired. I have to be at work in like five hours. It's crazy. Oh, don't you love the holidays? I just love being an essential employee. Not. Uh, People wonder why I don't put this on my resume. Because every time I did, like on Monster and all this, I got tons, I mean tons of like retail jobs. I'm like, no, this is my pandemic work. I do other things. Are you paying attention? I'm glad all of you are paying attention. And I hope you're all having a great time here as we look at uh, our last show for Rocktober 2021 here on Halloween. And uh, Motley Crue, yes, uh, basically uh, the group that kickstarted and almost practically invented the glam metal and hair metal movements right out of Los Angeles, my hometown. Let's recap what we've heard in the second part before we into a song that I absolutely, truly is probably one of my 10 favorite songs of all time. Kicked it all off with Bastard from Shout of the Devil from 83. Follow me that. The original Leather Records version from 1981. Uh, the original version of Too Fast for Love of Livewire. Yes, with the, the clapping and the... the all that. It's fantastic, isn't it? Following that, the band's first top 20 single, Smokin' in the Boys' Room, a cover of a Browns, uh, Brownsville Station song from uh, the early 70s. That was released in 85 on Theater of Pain. Uh, after that, Kickstart My Heart and Dr. Feelgood, both from the album Dr. Feelgood from 1989. A couple of smokers there. Uh, and the 45 RPM single, A-Side, to Stick to Your Guns from 1981, the song that launched it all. And the alternate version follows that of Too Fast for Love, uh, which was edited and released on Too Fast for Love, their debut from 1982, um, where the intro and the ending are, have both been chopped. Yes. <laughs> and the song we just heard from the album Girls, 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 probably one of the few songs that actually are listenable on the album. I know it sold a lot of copies and there was a lot of teenage boys who loved it. I just was, I know personally I was rather disappointed in hearing the band tell me, you know, tell, tell interviews, I should say, how disappointed they were. It didn't make me feel so bad for hating the record. It just seemed like, okay, this is a step backwards or something, right? I mean, a step backwards from Molly Crew, that's saying a lot right it just it the whole album seemed to lack any kind of focus uh, I, and thankfully dr feelgood kind of just changed all that back yes 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 um a fantastic number they still perform live and uh our last song well i remember when i first heard it and i remember uh, being at kmet uh their studios in uh, los angeles where i was an unpaid intern yes Decades ago, my first professional media job. And uh, what did that mean at the time? Well, initially, uh, you know, because my father was a dope dealer. Let's just throw this out there. Uh, and he had a room at the Landmark Hotel, the same place as Janis Joplin OD'd. So I would go to the studio and employees there, who shall remain nameless, <laughs> and there was quite a number of them, would give me an envelope. My assumption was filled with money. I'd go see dad. And then I'd come back with a bag with their name on it. No, nothing suspicious about it at all. <laughs> it was what it was. And it was the decade of decadence uh, to paraphrase one of their albums, uh, Molly Cruz albums. There's just the way Hollywood was at the time. It really was sex and drugs and rock and roll and death. <sighs> 
And uh, I remember KMET, the fan, every, when they started playing this, KMET were the first uh, radio station actually to play. Uh, they played a lot of these bands first before anyone else. Uh, it's a shame that they had to close in 1987 because they really were something else at the time. And um, they, uh, I remember the fan, the, people, the switchboards would light up and all that. And uh, they ended up playing this song. I remember literally it was one of the first times they had played it. They literally played it twice in a row. And they just kept playing it like every hour because the, the demand was so high. Because it really is all that. And I want to say this, you know, again, for all my years of experience, this may be one of my all-time top 10 favorite songs. I never get tired of listening to it. And easily one of the top 10, if not the best rock single of the entire decade. And that's saying a whole hell of a lot. If you have questions, feedback, comments, dedications, love, love, and requests are always welcome. You can drop me a line at daddybenbear.com. When we're at daddybenbear at gmail.com, find me on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn by typing in Ben Brown Jr. Or find me on the design site at aospdx.com and use the contact page. Love to you all. Happy Rocktober. Happy Halloween. Hope you're all having a great time. From the album Shout of the Devil from 1983, this is Looks That Kill. Looks That Kill. 